Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. We really, for ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment, we do need to dive in to the deep end and we need to get deeply curious about ourselves, about others in the world around us, and even about the beyond if we want to live lives where we're not just trying to survive, but really are, you know, trying to thrive. And we know from the research that people with higher levels of curiosity tend to have higher life satisfaction. And they also tend to have more fulfilling relationships and just positive overall well-being, including happiness. They tend to be happier people. And we also know that when you have lower levels of curiosity, you increase your mortality rates. You know, they've done these studies with older adults. And when you aren't exercising your curiosity, you're more likely to not live as long. You're chopping years off your lifespan. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Scott, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks. So happy to be on the show. Appreciate it. I am beyond thrilled to have you here. You have a new book out called Seek, How Curiosity Can Transform Your Life and Change the World. And considering I have built this entire podcast based on nothing but personal curiosity, I knew I wanted to talk to you. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, before we get into the book, uh, one of the things I got from reading the book was it seemed like your father played a really integral role in your life. And I wanted to start by asking you, what is one of the most important things you learned from your dad that influenced and shaped who you've become and what you've ended up doing both, both with your life and your career? Oh, I love that question. Thanks for asking about him. Um, he's, yeah, he died, um, you know, o- over a decade ago, but he still really lives with me um, in my heart and sort of spirit and the way that I move through the world. He was a really complex man. Um, but one thing that he always did that I do to this day is he was willing to talk to anyone. It didn't matter if he there was like the postal service driver or the person that worked the you know trash can delivery or you know all of our neighbors or someone at the supermarket or someone on the bus or someone on the street you know he would always be able to strike up a conversation and you know we would be going maybe to like the movies for like our once that month sort of movie adventure and we'd be like in a conversation with someone for twenty minutes you know before we even arrived at the show. Um, that he didn't even know. Um, so he was so good at connecting to strangers and making them feel 
um, sort of heard and seen and appreciated and valued. And that makes sense. I mean, he was, you know, door to door salesman. He sold knives and encyclopedias and, you know, phone, um, cards and phone books and stuff like that. So, you know, he was always really good at striking up conversations with folks. And yeah, I, I, I do that now too. That's something that everyone points out to me. They're like, wow, you can talk to anyone and you can just strike up a conversation. They're all so different. They're older and younger and, you know, all kinds of backgrounds and you can just drop in. And I'm so appreciative of, of that. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, my sister has a one year old and he's just started learning words at a rate that all of us are shocked by. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he should took him to the pediatrician's office yesterday and she's like, he decided that he would be the official greeter for the office. I mean, everywhere he goes because <laughs> he's learning how to say hi. So he just says hey to everybody. Aww, and, you so know, cute. as it really is amazing. But it got me thinking as you were saying what you were saying, what happens to that? Like, why is it that we become so less sort of receptive to talking to new people with age? Like he's obviously has no perception of what's going on. He's yeah. just like, hey, and it seems so simple. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's like the foundation of every relationship you have. Yeah, totally. Well, I think like when we're younger, you know, especially, you know, we aren't sort of exposed to the culture that exists in our world, right? That there's so much danger. There's things that we should fear. You know, there's all these messages that we get from the news, from the people around us um, about, you know, what, you know, why talking to strangers is not a healthy or, or you know, a safe thing to do. Um, and obviously those stories don't come from nowhere. There are you know, examples of, you know, really horrific things that have happened um, when, you know, a kid or something talks to a stranger. But, you know, more than likely, you're about to, you're going to encounter someone in, in the world um, who is similar to you in many ways. And, you know, I think has just as much curiosity about the people who are around them and um, have interesting lives that you can learn a lot about. Um, so that's sort of, you know, why I wrote the book, you know, I just want you know, part in part is, is we're, we're living in this era of incuriosity right now. Like, I feel like today we're so unwilling to turn towards the stranger we're sitting next to on the, on the bus or the subway, right? We'd rather be on our phones or even, you know, at our family reunions, you know, we're like, oh, that, that person, you know, voted in a different way. Like, I'm not going to talk to them the whole time, you know? So I, I, I see us sort of moving away from, you know, what you're seeing in your nephew or, um, you know, what my dad showed me where we have this openness and this open heartedness and this willingness to talk to different people. Well, so what other thing, you know, you're of Asian descent, you've taught at Berkeley. So I got to ask like with your parents and, and your dad in particular, what was the narrative about making your way in the world? Because like, I don't know if it was the same for you, like any Indian kid, everybody knows I've said before a thousand times, doctor, lawyer, engineer, or failure. Mm. Those are your options. Like what was that narrative in your household? Yeah. So you know, I grew up in Hawaii. So, you know, I, I think that there is like a, a little bit of a difference maybe in what it's like to grow up, you know, as, you know, an Asian American or mixed or, um, you know, Pacific Islander, like out in Hawaii versus on the mainland. Um, especially for Asians, I would say, um, based on just like my anecdotal, you know, like talking to people who are from Hawaii and then who are from the mainland, um, who are first generation or, you know, fourth generation, you know, there's, I, I think, you know, people from Hawaii culturally, there's like this similar DNA that we all share, um, or not DNA, but like cultural DNA that we all share, um, where it's very like, we're, we're super open. We have huge like family events. We go to the beach. We like are, you know, not so, you know, it's very social and human relationship based, right? The Aloha spirit, like that's what mm -hmm. we talk about a lot in Hawaii. 
it, it, that's really was the priority for my, my family and my parents and my extended family. You know, we would go to these big holiday gatherings and there'd be like 40, 50 people there. And we wouldn't really talk about work, you know, like those were the, you know, or, or, or you know, what you were going to be. I think my parents wanted me to be happy and successful. Um, but you know, they, they didn't definitely give me that sort of, um, pressure to, you know, be a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. I think they just wanted to make sure that, you know, because people in our family struggled and we would like drop off groceries to people and people were like barely living off of social security and stuff in my family. They just wanted me to, you know, be able to take care of myself. I think that was the biggest thing. Cause I even applied to, I was applied to art schools, you know, and they were like, Oh, cool. Like love that for you, you know, cause I doodled and wrote, you know, all through my childhood. Um, I didn't end up going to an art school. I didn't get in, but, um, I still like kept that creativity with me alive to the, the school I eventually did go to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one other thing, uh, about your parents, and then we'll get into the book and sort of the career trajectory that led there. Uh, you alluded to being gay in the book, if I remember correctly. And mm-hmm. I wonder what that experience was like, uh, of coming out to parents as well as, as sort of the people you know in your life. Because like, I always wondered how this differs across cultures. And I can tell you, I've had mm-hmm. other guests, some who have said it was basically the end of their relationship with their parents, mm-hmm. others who said they were stunned by how open they were. So I, I wonder in like the Asian American culture, cause like I know in the Indian culture, it's so taboo almost that like, I don't think I know any gay Indian people. Mm-hmm. I know, you know what? I knew one at Berkeley and everybody knew that he was gay. Right, right. Yeah. And some people, you know, they're around and talking to people who are, you know, a part of the LGBTQ community, but they don't know it, you know, because um, some folks haven't disclosed that to certain people um, for all kinds of different reasons. Um, but for me, yeah. So I didn't get to come out to my dad um, before he died, unfortunately. But um, yeah, I have a feeling that he would have reacted pretty similar to how my mom did. Um, which was, you know, she was a little bit like, didn't understand it at first was, you know, concerned for my safety, um, after sort of her, you know, not knowing so much about our community. And, you know, she was alive, um, during a time when there was a lot of persecution against LGBTQ people. Not that that doesn't exist today. It's, but I, the cultural sort of shift has happened, um, in comparison to like the eighties or the nineties. Um, although our trans brothers and sisters are still under attack and assault at a really disproportionate rate today. Um, but yeah, so she was sort of like struggling to understand it. And it took her like a couple months to be able to, you know, really come around and be like, okay, I'm, I understand that you're gay, what this means for you. Um, you know, and, and she became really accepting and even celebratory of it. And she called me one day afterwards and she said, I didn't vote for this person who is going to, you know, become the rep for Hawaii because they, they weren't, you know, pro LGBTQ. And I was like, Oh my God, that's awesome, mom. Like you love that. And I don't know. It's just a reminder that, you know, sometimes it takes time for people to, you know, understand something that they're not familiar with that, you know, they never had exposure to growing up. And, you know, I, I've heard so many stories where people are like, Oh, my parents don't get it. And then they like cut or cancel them out of their lives, you know? Um, and the same happens even just like in the political arena, right? Like someone, has a very opposing view and they just like don't understand your own point of view or don't understand your own suffering, your own life experiences. So we cut and cancel those people out from their, you know, your life. But sometimes it takes mm-hmm. time. It takes like a couple of weeks, it takes a couple of months for them to really fully digest it, understand it, get out of their own way, you know, like see and learn new things um, that then, you know, change their perspective for the better. Yeah. Yeah. Based on the timeline, I get the sense that you lost your father at a pretty young age. 
And it, to me, that's like one of those things that I think I just absolutely fear more than anything in the world. Because mm. I'm like, there's no self-help book for this one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've asked so many people at Frank Prostaseski from the Zen Hospice Project here. Um, but like, how do you navigate the grief of something like that? And, you know, at some point, how, like, how do you move on? Yeah. Yeah. And we also had a complicated relationship because, you know, when I was in middle school, my dad went to prison for a number of years. And so we had this, you know, obviously this, um, sort of disconnect where I would only see him, you know, through this one room during visitation hours, you know, um, at, at the prison. So, um, and that doesn't also define his experience because the prison, you know, sentence was related to an addiction. And, you know, he's more than that. I mean, he is also just like one of the most creative and entrepreneurial people that I knew growing up and really inspired me to be on the path that I am today in a lot of ways. So, you know, I think grief is really complicated sometimes, you know, when you have a really complicated history with someone, especially a parent or, you know, someone that you're extremely close to that you grew up with. Um, my parents were also, you know, divorced. So then that, that adds another sort of layer of complication too. Um, but in terms of like navigating the grief, I mean, it took years. I think, you know, sometimes people are like, Oh, you'll get over that, like in a, you know, a couple of weeks or a couple of months and then you'll move on. But, you know, and that might be true for some people who, you know, have particular relationships, um, with family members and the grief seem is a little more simple, you know, and, and, and we all grieve in different ways. But for me and, grieving my dad, it was like almost a decade long journey of sort of reconciling his history, our relationship, um, really getting curious about, you know, the, what was the life that we did live that what that I'm grateful for? Um, what did I learn from him? What are the things that I'm carrying with me that I might pass on to my children? You know, like all of those kinds of questions. And And, you know, just really just like, I remember like six years after he died, like I just like randomly like broke down, like on the side of the road one night, you know what I mean? So it just kind of hits you in waves too, if you lose someone really close to you. And I think, yeah, you're right. When you lose someone, when you're younger, I was basically a kid, you know, when I lost him, you know, it's, you, you don't necessarily have that experience of losing someone. Um, You don't have those like coping skills um, to support you through that journey, or sometimes even like that professional support or like that huge, you know, friend group, you know, um, who really understands what you're going through, right? Um, so that that can be really challenging and difficult. And that's why it's really important when, you know, young people lose someone really important to them in their lives, you know, making sure that they're supported and cared for and, and heard and, you know, it is really important, not just in month three after the the death, but, you know, years later. Yeah. I remember my uh, friend Matt's mom, who I was asking her about this, and she said, doesn't matter how old you are uh, when you lose a parent. She's like, there's never going to be a day that goes by that you don't think about them. Yeah, that's true, too. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And everyone has different relationships, too, with their parents. You know, some people are like, no contact. And I've set a boundary for a very good reason. You know what I mean? And that's even more complicated or can be more complicated, you know, in terms of grieving. So it's just, it really depends on the person and the relationship, you know? So. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, talk to me about the trajectory that led you to getting to the point where you've done research and wrote a book on curiosity. Like what led you here? Yeah, I think the big sort of doubt, like the moment for me, the the capital T, capital M is the 2016 elections. And I just remember in in the United States for the, the presidential elections. And I just remember looking at the news and looking at social media and looking around, you know, my communities, my family, like my workplace, like everything. It was just, it was so, so heated. Everyone was just dehumanizing one another. No one was listening to one another. I felt like from where I was standing and, you know, I just felt like, wow, is this, 
is this the new normal? Is this where we're headed? Like, is this the device? And, and what does this division and toxic polarization mean for us? Like, where, where is this going to take us? We're we actually going to be able to hold relationships across our differences. Are we going to be able to solve problems, you know, together that are, that, that real people are facing, you know, and experiencing today, whether it's food insecurity or homelessness or the climate crisis or whatever it is, right? Can't come together. We can't actually solve these problems. So, um, you know, I think, that was like the big sort of catalyzing moment. And I, you know, I basically, you know, looked at the job I was in, which was, you know, sort of like corporate agency job. And we did good work. Um, but I was like, gosh, there's like, there's that storyteller inside of me. You know, I had written for the Washington Post and I had been a longtime writer. And um, I kind of had like, a, you know, four or five years where I like went away from that part of my, my path. And every day that passed in those five years, I got this tapping, you know, on my shoulder that I was like, you need to go back to that. Like, yeah, it's, it might feel a little bit less like financially secure. Yeah, it might not be as like comfortable as what you're in right now, but like that's your purpose. You got to go back to it. And so sort of all of that made me realize I need to quit my job. Like this is just, it's becoming too much for me. And I want to explore the divide and how we can come back together and how we can heal. And so I set off on this journey in my Prius and I just like took out the back seats, put it in a bed, got a Planet Fitness membership. And I just went off on this like year plus long road trip and I went to Trump rallies and I went to, you know, churches and I went to organizations that were anti-LGBTQ um, or had policies or legislation they were trying to pass. It was anti-LGBTQ. And it's like, we are so different and we have such opposing views. But I think that if we can see each other and, and we can see each other in a, you know, for our humanity, our common humanity, you know, and actually listen to each other's stories, perhaps we can, you know, build a more just and a, and a, a more just society and a society where we all belong. And so that's, that's when I head off out of San Francisco, my progressive enclave as it's like queer Asian American. You know, my friends were like, you got to bring a gun. You got to bring a knife. You know, like it's going to be so scary out there. And I was like, I don't know how to use those things and I don't want to use this. Like, no, I'm not going to do that. Like I'm just going to be armed with my curiosity and we'll see where that takes me. Yeah. Well, one of the very first things you say in the book is that we need to become the kind of people who search for stories rather than positions and values instead of views. We have to look inside of ourselves, getting curious about our own past emotions and not just rely on learning about the world outside of us. And the parts about the Trump rally in particular stuck me, you as a queer Asian man going. And so I wondered, you actually were there. And I think that one of the things that media does is it tends to show the worst of everybody. Uh, mm. Like, particularly when we look at Trump supporters, Trump rallies, what obviously gets the most attention is the most extreme stuff. Mm. Um, and obviously algorithms play a role, but like, can you share some of the things that were really surprising? Like, I think that's the thing. Like, if you talk to somebody who comes from like a progressive enclave, yeah. their sort of general consensus is, oh, they're all just a bunch of racists. I mean, Hillary Clinton went so far as to call an entire group of people deplorables. And I'm like, you know what? Some of those people were actually my friends. I don't agree with them. Yeah. But I have yeah. friends who voted for Trump. Good friends. Like some of my best friends. Yeah. 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 And I think we see this in, in so many different conflicts across, you know, whether, you know, it's, you know, you know, it, it, whether it's politics or whether it's race based or faith based or geopolitical or whatever, you know, there's this sort of like othering that happens, right? Where an entire group of people are like casted as this like monolithic. They're all the same. They're all, you know, the enemy. And even some people when I was going off to Trump rallies are like, why, you know, people who I, you know, align with ideologically, they're like, why are you platforming or supporting, you know, the enemy? You're crossing enemy lines. Like you're, 
you know, that's, you know, you're basically supporting white supremacy, you know, and it was just like a lot of these like really intense sort of allegations. And, um, you know, when I got there to the rally, you know, I had all of those assumptions, all of those fears, all of those, um, allegations that were made towards me. I was holding that in my body, you know what I mean? And I was like, you know, I entered the, the parking lot area and there was like the sea of, you know, red hats and red shirts and these huge jumbotrons with Trump on it. And I was like, shit, am I doing all those things that they're telling me? Like, should I even be here? But I just like kept on going forward. And I said, that's their, that's, you know, they're coming from their own pain, their own suffering, their own injustices that they felt. And, you know, I, I have to hold that, but I also have to, you know, see and hold what's going on here too, because that's also a part of the picture. And what was surprising to me was, you know, I had this stereotype of a Trump voter, you know, before I had went to a rally, I, I, I saw them as, you know, uneducated from, you know, um, I saw them as, you know, you know, mostly white, um, from, you know, probably rural parts of the country. You know, I, I, they came from the news. They came from the, the narrative that was in the culture and on social media. And, and then I started talking to people and I was like, whoa, like so many people have advanced degrees. Like so many people, um, have done, you know, um, are, you know, are, you know, working in, uh, rows of like nonprofits and in humanitarian organizations. Um, I learned, you know, they're so similar to like me in terms of like the shows they were watching and what they were enjoying and in, in popular culture and, um, the struggles they were having in their relationships to their romantic partners. I was like, wow, I really identify with a, like a lot of these, um, sort of, you know, where, where these conversations were going and, and just, you know, what they wanted for their kids and their families. It, it was just like, you could have dropped me into a democratic rally and a lot of those same things would come up, right? And in conversation. Um, but I did hear also a lot of, um, of the same sort of fears and anxieties of, you know, how these Democrats, those people, you know, at least you're coming out here to talk to us. Like, you know, your people don't do that. They all think we're evil. Like, I, and then they told me these stories of, of family members or their, you know, their girlfriend's friends who, you know, have basically talked shit in front of them or behind their back and had made them to feel lesser than or stupid or dumb for the ways that they voted. Um, and they clearly aren't. I mean, they're, they're many of the people I talked to, at least at, at that particular rally that you're talking about, um, you know, were, you know, educated and had a coherent thought and like knew why they were voting for you know, Trump and, you know, also had some of the nuances that, you know, we have about the Democratic candidates that I would vote for. So, you know, I, I think I, I just, I just kind of like realized in, in the rally, like we're, you know, yes, we have very different views, but at the core human level, we are, you know, very similar. I did meet some people, um, just throughout my journey who, you know, definitely had views that were, you know, hateful or were misguided, I think you could find the same thing on the Democratic side too, you know, yeah. where, you know, groups of people are dehumanized for whatever reason, whether it's coming from their own pain or their own, you know, biases. But um, for the most part, I think people are just trying to feel heard and, and want to move the country forward and want their like families and their communities to be taken care of. I think that's what we can all agree on. You know, it's, it's funny you say that because I had a mentor, Greg, who traveled around the country, visited all 50 states. And one of the things that he said to me was that when you live in a place like California or these progressive enclaves, he's like, you have a very distorted perception of what this country is actually like. Yeah. And 
I remember when I was driving to Colorado, I stopped in this tiny little town in Utah somewhere. Um, and it was five o'clock on a Monday afternoon. It was on Main Street and every single shop was boarded up, closed. There were mm-hmm. hardly any restaurants open. And I thought to myself, no wonder these people are pissed off. Mm-hmm. Like their lives are falling apart. Like how can you, if your livelihood was threatened in this way, you'd probably react the same way. Yep, 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 yep. When your only exposure to Utah is the Book of Mormon on Broadway, you know what I mean? Like in New York City, <laughs> yeah. it's like, you're not going to know that like Salt Lake City is one of the queerest cities in the country. You're not going to know that there are like extremely incredible conservation efforts in Utah that are basically like single-handedly saving the desert and other ecosystems. You know what I mean? Like there are so, there's so much there. And even people who do identify as a part of the Latter-day Saints like community, you know, who I have friends within, you know, and, and I actually like lived, you know, in my, like right after college, um, with a group of progressive Latter-day Saints folks, um, in this like group house. And I went to like singles ward with them, you know, and I just like hung out and partied with them, you know, you just start to see a more nuanced picture of like, wow, there's like, just like in any religion, um, you know, no two Christians are the same and no two Latter-day Saints are the same. And, and, and Utah is just like really diverse place. And I also think, you know, living in California, and having a partner who's from the South, you know, he, he has definitely opened my eyes to, to really recognize the ways in which people here view people from the South. You know what I mean? Like the caricatures, the ways people like drop in an accent, like sort of like have this like stereotype that people from the South are, are dumb or uneducated or all vote red or like whatever it is, you know, and it's just like not true. It's not founded on any reality. You know, when you go to the South, uh, there is a, huge diversity of people, you know, racially, um, you know, there's huge cultures that are there that aren't, it's not monolithic by any means. There's a very vibrant democratic voting base there. Um, you have, you know, all sorts of really interesting innovators and entrepreneurs in the South. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's so interesting. You know, we, you know, I hear a lot from people in California of like, wow, like look at all the ways that people on the other side are stereotyping and, you know, you know, have waging assumptions at our communities. But, you know, if we really looked at our own selves in the mirror, you know, we're often doing the same thing just to different groups. Well, let's talk about the role of curiosity in uh, education and start with childhood in particular, because Mm -hmm. one of the things you say is that as we grow up and become more certain about the world, most of us leave curiosity to the children. The problem is research shows that curiosity is critical for learning through the entirety of our life, not just Mm -hmm. at childhood. And it's got me thinking about my one-year-old nephew. That guy is curious about everything. Everything is interesting to him. Um, But you also taught at my alma mater. And it got me wondering, and I, I ask anybody who has worked in our education system, like if you were tasked with redesigning the education system from the ground up with the background that you have from having written this book, mm-hmm. what would you change? Because what I realized when I went then looked back at sort of how I made my choices at Berkeley, not a single class I ever took was based on what am I curious about? It was always exactly. what I think yeah. will get me a job. And of course, I'm doing nothing related to any of it. Yeah. Yeah, I think like, I mean, what I would do if I just like could wave a magic wand, um, I think is one is exactly that is to ask students what they're curious about um, and to support that learning journey around that and to give them access to the tools and, you know, the technologies and to be in communities with other peers to explore those topics and just share more about those topics. You know, 
we see that at the adult level with like communities of practice, for instance, and we see all the benefits of that, but we don't really bring that, you know, into the lives of children. And they could definitely do that and excel at that and learn a lot from that. Um, you know, I think too, I would like bring, you know, students out into nature more. Like that's what I've seen. Um, in my college classrooms that I teach is, you know, a lot of them are disconnected from nature. They've spent a lot of time, especially, you know, the places that I've taught, University of Pennsylvania, UT Austin, Cal, you know, they're, they've spent a lot of time just like many of them to just like nail these tests, like get these great scores, like get into these schools. And, you know, there's almost like this, um, this huge level of anxiety and this pressure that they've put on themselves and also like major imposter syndrome because they've succeeded so much that they, they feel like I'm not actually as good as I say I am. And I think one of the best solutions to heal through that, um, is a, not only to name those things and to be honest about them in a vulnerable way to one another, but B to get out into nature and to, you know, do an all walk and to be just inspired by our natural world. Um, we know from the research that that definitely regulates our um, emotions. It reduces anxiety. It can help us with, you know, this awe, this experience of awe can help us in immeasurable ways. It also makes us more curious too, um, about ourselves and the world around us. So, um, I would get folks, you know, out into nature in some way. And then also I just think there's just like a fundamental resourcing problem. <laughs> like we're just not resourcing, especially public education. Well, like teachers are being asked, you know, I have many friends who are public school teachers you know, they are being asked to do way too much, you know, for way, you know, they're, you know, and, and I know it's complicated to increase teacher pay, you know, in the way that the system works, but you know, we need to really be compensating our teachers well. Um, and, you know, really finding ways to make sure that, you know, for example, they're not paying out of their own salary to get classroom, you know, materials. I mean, that's just, you know, there's, there's like basic things on the resourcing front we need to change. Um, but yeah, I think, I, you know, and I think if we can really support parents and the communities around the student as well to, you yeah. know, be engaged and be involved in that student's learning journey, you know, show their own curiosity as parents, for instance. We know from the research that when a parent shows their curiosity and models it and demonstrates it, their kids are more likely to have heightened levels of, of trait, um, or trait and state curiosity. <clears throat> so that's really exciting to know that you know, I don't just have to try to instill it within my child. I can be curious again. Like I can talk about the things that I'm getting curious about. I can explore new experiences and new interests and that'll help my child as well because they'll see that and, and, and they'll, mo and they'll, you know, they'll model it, um, after us. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think those are the, I mean, there's, I'm, there's educated experts. I mean, there's so much I don't know also about the, I'm just a, you know, I'm, I just teach, you know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't have a lot of an understanding of like the systems and how things are financed and all the politics. And, you know, there, there's so many things I don't know, but that's why we all need to come together with all of our different expertises yeah. and, you know, collaborate on a better solution. Yeah. I think most of us can agree that like education is messed up in a lot of ways. So, yeah. Well, um, like, I, I always joke that I'm a failed byproduct of the system because like I said, you know, nothing was based on curiosity. And it, like, I think that when I was looking back and I'd said this to somebody before on the show, I said, you know, like Berkeley, this like, you know, diverse place that was like the, you know, hotbed of the counterculture of the sixties. Like it's supposed to be, you know, this just incredibly like, dynamic and creative group of people. And I, like, I remember getting there and looking back, I'm like, yeah, but it's a breeding ground for conformity instead. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and part of that, I think is the, the lack of curiosity, like that just gets drilled out of them. Like, I don't know yeah. if you've ever seen the movie accepted with Dustin Long, 
where mm-hmm. he has no. to make up a, he doesn't get into college. So he makes up a fake college, um, oh, print, wow. create okay. the website. And then everybody, everybody shows like, he's not expecting the website to be functional, but his friend makes it functional and says acceptance is one click away and people actually pay tuition. And so he opens the door on day one and there's a thousand people outside. And Lewis Black is the dean. He was like, well, mm. what should we teach them? He said, I don't know. He's like, ask them. And that mm. really struck me when I said, well, it's like, wow. And the reactions are really telling because every time he does that, he's like, wait, why are you asking me? He's like, because he's like, I guess I'm guessing nobody has ever asked you what you're interested in before. And mm. he says, okay, fine. Take this guy's tuition and appropriate it towards his, his thing that he's curious about. Mm. And I like, really wish an education institution would just do a pilot program that yeah, is driven I've, entirely by curiosity. I've actually seen, um, especially in the K through six space, you know, I've definitely yeah. seen models of this where students come to the table and they say what they're curious about or what they want to, you know, focus on for their learning today. And then they collectively explore that, um, you know, and I lived in Iceland for two years. I think this is also in other countries as well. And there's like a lot we can learn from one another. Um, but I love that that's sort of entering popular culture because we, you know, we build these parasocial relationships with characters, you know, on a TV show or on a movie. And that can really change our perspectives in the ways that we move through our real lives. Right. So, for instance, if you don't know anyone who's queer and you see a character on a TV show who is, you know, you're basically building this parasocial relationship with them and you're learning things about their lives. And you're, you know, you're able to really understand their stories and how they move through the world and what they struggle with. And that builds your empathy. And when you meet someone in real life who identifies in that same way, you have that sort of existing relationship and knowledge that you can bring in to the table, right? Which is really exciting. Um, so I, you know, I think the same is true maybe for like folks who are from Utah or from the South or, you know, who voted for Trump. Like we need to have more sort of fully fleshed out and nuanced characters. Um, you know, who represent the diversity of America in all ways. Um, there's a big movement in Hollywood for like, you know, race representation, but I think it extends beyond that as well. Um, and yeah, I would also just say, you know, I hope we move to a world where that happens. That I hope your nephew, you know, uh, grows up in a school system like that. That would be incredible. And to your point, college campuses are so ripe right now also with um, this sort of like group mob mentality of sort of, you know, responding to conflicts or crises that exist in the world, or maybe a speaker that's coming to their campus. And it can create extreme blowups and divisions and sometimes even violence, you know. Um, and these are supposed to be institutions that, you know, help people with free thought and free expression and, you know, critical thinking and learning about multiple perspectives. But we're definitely seeing a lot of struggles with that on campuses across the country. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. Learn more at uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Well, I think that makes a perfect segue into two concepts that you talk about in the book, which are inward directing our curiosity and outward directing our curiosity. Can you expand on those for people and explain what they are and how they play a role in our lives? Totally. And so, so curiosity is our desire to understand. And, you know, we can understand, you know, we often think about curiosity about understanding other people, the world around us. You know, I want to get curious about, you know, this person who I'm in conversation with. I want to get curious about this topic in school that I'm really fascinated about. But there's also, you know, inward curiosity, um, which is about, you know, how do we direct our desire to understand towards ourselves? You know, what, you know, like I, we talked about in the beginning of this episode, you know, my relationship to my dad, what he meant to me, how do I grieve? What are the ways that I can support myself and cope with, you know, grieving? Um, you know, who, you know, who am I in terms of like, what, what is my purpose? What is the kind of work I want to do in the world? Um, what would make me <clears throat> feel like I have fulfilling relationships? Um, what values do I hold? Where did those come from? You know, like those are all inward curiosity explorations. And, you know, it's what a therapist might do, right? If you're in conversation <clears throat> with a Western trained therapist, you know, they're really going to help you to, you know, usually in talk therapy, at least in, in certain modalities, they'll ask you questions that really are an exploration of your inner world, your emotions how you react or respond to things, how you feel about certain relationships. That's inward curiosity. So you have inward, outward. And then there's a third direction, which is the beyond. And the beyond is about 
how do you get curious about what is not in the physical realm? So that might be the divine God consciousness. Um, it also could be our ancestors or, you know, those who aren't born yet seven generations from now. So, so those are the three directions. You have inward, getting curious about yourself, outward, getting curious about others or the world around you, and the beyond, getting curious about what's not in the physical realm. You also make this distinction between both shallow and deep curiosity. And you say that shallow curiosity means you acknowledge the door is there, walk up to it and look through the people to see what's on the other side. Your view is distorted by the fisheye lens, which represents your assumptions, biases, and lack of nuance. Deep curiosity, on the other hand, is about turning the knob. It's opening the door and going through it. You venture into the unknown of the other side to experience it firsthand, which can feel daunting and exciting all at once. So tell me what like keeps people from indulging in deep curiosity and keeps them stuck in, in sort of shallow curiosity. Because like for me, like I said, I, yeah. people always ask me like, Oh, you seem to do so much research for this. And I was like, actually, I don't like to me, the interview is the research. I just yeah. follow my yeah. curiosity. Like I'm always asking questions based on what I want to know. Yeah. 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 And you do have preparation. I mean, I talk, you know, I have, you know, I talk about, you know, the importance of preparation, just like it's important to stretch before you go for a run. And, you know, you do a lot of preparation. You, you actually read the author's books and you, you know, do your own, you know, set of research. You come up with your own list of questions. And, you know, I think you're, you're also very emergent. It feels like, but, but I think you're, you know, I think journalists or hosts, um, you know, are great examples of, you know, curiosity ambassadors. You know, y'all are, you, you know, we're really good at that because we live and breathe that every day. Um, but there's so many other sort of occupations that are also really great at it. Some that are unlikely, like a wildland firefighter or like an end of life doula. But, um, yeah. So I think the big, you know, I like to think about shallow to deep curiosity, curiosity, not just like as a door that we open, but also as an ocean because there's shallow waters and there's deep waters. And, you know, shallow waters, like we're trying to understand someone almost at that shallow level. Like, what's your name? Where do you live? What do you do for work? And then as you move along the spectrum, along the ocean to the deeper, you know, ends, you really have to dive beneath the surface. You have to go underneath the water to really see, you know, who is this person that I'm talking to? What are their stories? What are the relationships to the people that they care most about? Instead of, you know, what's your name? You might ask, what's the story of your name or who named you or what's your relationship with the people who named you? Can you tell me about them? Right. So it's a little bit deeper. It, it gives you insight into who that person is in a richer way. But, you know, just like going to the deep end of the ocean, it's scary, man. Like, you know, it can be scary to like dive there for a bunch of reasons. We have fear of, okay, if I ask these questions, does that mean I, you know, I should probably answer them? And like, that's vulnerable. That feels scary to me. Um, you know, what if we find out things about this person that make us react in particular ways? Right. I know that's, you know, what holds back a lot of couples, for instance, in romantic relationships that are, you know, where they're struggling and they, they really need to look into the relationship and inward into their cells and in, into each other. But, you know, they don't want to hear news that might mean something devastating for their relationship, you know? And so they kind of just dismiss it and they getting curious about it and they, you know, just go about their days. Right. But we really, for ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment, we do need to dive in to the deep end and we need to get deeply curious about ourselves about others in the world around us and even about the beyond if we want to live, you know, lives that um, where we're not just trying to survive, but really are, you know, trying to, you know, trying to thrive. And we know from the research that people with higher levels of curiosity tend to have higher life satisfaction and they also tend to have more fulfilling relationships <laughs> and just positive 
you know, overall well-being, including happiness. They tend to be happier people. And we mm-hmm. also know that when you have lower levels of curiosity, you increase your mortality rates. You know, they've done these older, these studies with older adults. And yeah, when you aren't exercising your curiosity, you're more likely to not live as long. You're chopping years off your lifespan. So it's, it, it really, it's a mechanism to thrive, but it also is a mechanism to survive. And that makes sense too, because, you know, we have our curiosity. We're born with it because of our ancestors. You know, we needed someone in, in the group to, be curious about is water on the other side of that mountain or is food, is that food in that bush? Or, you know, how do we track this buffalo or, you know, can I eat this mushroom? Like whatever, you know, our curiosities led us to, you know, building tools and communicating with one another and building relationships. So all of that, you know, you know, thanks to, you know, evolution, you know, was passed on to us. And when researchers, you know, study infants, you know, before they can even learn something from the people around them, they find that infants stare at novel stimuli for longer than known stimuli, uh, meaning that they're more interested and more captivated, you know, and have their attention towards the things that are new to them versus the things that are old or known. So it is something we're born with. And even that, even though we're born with it, um, it can be scary to sort of get towards that deeper end to exercise it, the scarier depths. Um, you know, just like lifting a muscle though, you know, like you're, you have, if you haven't really like run a lot or if you haven't really lifted weights a lot, yeah, you're going to look at that like marathon or you're going to look at that like 200 pound bench lift and you're going to be like, wow, that seems scary. That seems hard and unattainable. But, you know, you work at it, you practice it, you build that muscle over time and um, you condition and you can eventually get there. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it makes when I hear you say that it, it suddenly like the, the way that I start the show makes a lot of sense. And I, you know, ask these questions. I remember. Cal uh, Fussman, who's world-class interview, told this story on Tim Ferriss's podcast where he had uh, an interview with Gorbachev and he thought he was going to get an hour and somehow the schedule got mangled. And so he basically said, all right, well, he said, then he asked him this question about his father and Gorbachev mm-hmm. ended up talking to him for about an hour, uh, even though he had thought he was only going to have 15 minutes because that yeah. was like the kind of question you could not answer without depth. Yep. 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 That's, I actually got to meet Cal a couple of years ago and um, yeah, he has such a love for questions and the, the, you know, the interesting, the powerful, the compelling, the fresh. And, yeah. you know, I think that's something that a lot of people who I find are really, really competent with their curiosity. They can go to like a Trump rally. They can, you know, essentially do that 200 pound deadlift or do that marathon with curiosity. You know, they tend to have, um, you know, a, a, a database, you know, of really, really powerful questions that they've been asked or that they've asked others, um, that they sort of like keep in their back pocket. And, you know, that's why in the book I say like, you know, we can't just be a culture that's focused on answers and knowing this. We also have to, you know, really remember the great questions that open doors to understanding and connection, right? We, we have to write those down. You know, we have to, as employers in a workplace, we have to, you know, reward people who ask really great questions and not see it as like, oh, they're holding, you know, they're making this team meeting longer or they're, you know, holding us back from like accomplishing the mission of solving it, right? Because those expirations um, are really, really helpful for us, especially in the long term um, yeah. in a business setting, but also personally and the research supports that as well. Well, so there's one other layer of this that I, that really struck me uh, when you said that when we try to persuade uh, we lose sight of the person in front of us and just see position instead. This puts them on the defensive or causes them to shut down. 
by not having a genuine interest in their values, upbringing, or personal experiences that shape their view, you're engaging in predatory curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really stood out to me because I, I thought about that from the standpoint of the, the types of questions that I ask. People are like, every now and then people are like, you go for the jugular. I'm like, well, my goal isn't to like make somebody feel uncomfortable. It's to mm-hmm. get to know them, mm-hmm. get to a part of them that I can't get to if all I did was talk to you about your work. Um, but it got me thinking about that from sort of a sales perspective or, or any other perspective where yes, you know, yeah. we can kind of, we think we can fake it, but I, yeah. it, I mean, it, it, we really can't. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's kind of what a detective does, right? Like it looks like they're being really curious or asking open-ended questions. You know, their nonverbals are indicating that they're really listening well, but there's a goal for why they're asking these questions. You know, they're trying to figure something out, you know, um, and that is not true curiosity, right? Anytime there's an agenda underneath it, it can be like you walk, your partner walks through the door and, you know, um, you know, when you're at home and you got, you start to talk to them and then you really want them to ask you a question like, how's your day? Or like, how, you know, how was your work today or whatever? So you ask them a question. You're like waiting for them to ask you the question back, but they don't. And then maybe you get upset at them. You're like, why did you ask me the question? You know, like you were supposed to like, I'm also here present in this relationship, whatever, you know, that we, you know, that is not your curiosity. You're, you're expecting something from someone, um, you know, when you ask that question. Real curiosity is just, like you said, it's truly open-hearted, open-mindedness. Like, I'm here to just understand you and where you come from and, and to understand your experiences, to understand the person you are. You know, we live in a society where you know, people are flattened to their identities. You know, it's like, oh, you're, you're, you're Indian, you're Japanese. Okay. I know everything about you. Or like, you're a Christian. You're, you voted for Trump. I know everything about you. You're from the South. Oh, you're from California. Like, I know everything about you, right? Like we, we flatten people to their identities when there's so much more nuance and beauty and messiness and complication and contradiction. And the only way we can learn about those things is if we ask these really powerful questions and, you know, engage in a deeper form of curiosity. So yeah, I think that, um, that, you know, yeah, that, that, that's, that's very true. Yeah. Well, on that note, you say that when it comes to curiosity, what fills our mental and emotional cups isn't tea. It's what I call the ABCs, assumptions, biases, and certainty. These are the building blocks of our habitual thoughts and each shapes the way we see the world. These mental shortcuts serve an important purpose in our lives, helping us filter through the information so that we aren't constantly paralyzed by the influx of details that comes at us from every direction. But over time, your cups fills to the brim, often without us even noticing, leaving little room to absorb new information about ourselves and each other and the world around us. This gets in the way of deep curiosity. And I think about this in the context of the modern sort of digital age and how rampant it is with cognitive biases that distort the way that we um, interpret information, the mm-hmm. conversations we're willing to have. Because like, I've had people who have listened to this show, like I, this is one example that comes to mind. We had a guy here who was talking about infidelity. He was describing, you know, a somewhat graphic scene. I don't censor my guests because I'm like, I want to tell a true story. And it was really interesting to see the responses. One woman emailed me and was so offended that she called me a misogynist for having him as a guest. And, uh, you know, I replied back to her and said, look, like we have a ton of female guests and we don't censor our guests. And she said, don't ever email me again. Another woman heard the interview with that guy and she hired him to be her coach. Mm. So talk to me about how we mitigate the the sort of assumptions, biases, and certainty, like when we're dealing with a world that tends to reinforce almost all of our biases. Yeah. And, you know, there's like an opportunity. I mean, and, and again, this is based on our capacity and our, you know, 
our own spaciousness and our own life on whether we can do this or not. And, and also whether we're invited to do that and it's consented upon. But, you know, if, you know, someone emails you and has this sort of like, you know, reaction, um, you know, I'm, I'm always curious, like, where is that coming from? You know, like what, you know, what happened in your life or, you know, what, what emotions are coming up for you and where did those stem from? You know, that, you know, how'd you write this email? Cause like, we're all busy people. We've got like families, we've got like things to do. We're, you know, like we're, we're all, you know, we're all very, very busy. And to sort of like write a message, you know, out of your day based on a podcast you listen to. I mean, there's definitely something there, um, that, you know, you know, she, you know, I would, I would assume, and I don't know this person, but I would assume like, you know, that, you know, she wants to be heard and seen in that moment. And I think is, you know, is trying, you know, there, you know, it's obviously, you know, trying to advocate for some form of justice that she felt like wasn't, you know, in existence. And so I, I think when, you know, we, it's, it's a, it's really, you know, impulse, you know, human impulse. I do this all the time. Like when someone, you know, DMs me or messages me and they didn't like the way that I represented something or they think I'm platforming, you know, a view that's unjust, you know, I really want to also just like practice that curiosity when I can. Um, and say like, like, where is that coming from? Like, what you tell me more about why you feel that way. And I find that like when I don't get defensive and I really just like, again, just open heartedly just want to understand where this person is coming from. It doesn't only deescalate the, the intensity of the emotions that are happening, but then it opens the door for mutual understanding. And, and it's really beautiful. I think that's like what I, why I wanted to become a writer and like why I'm doing this whole thing, you know, is like to have those kinds of conversations. I didn't want to just like talk about bullshit, you know, <laughs> like talk about things that weren't actually meaningful. You know, I wanted to bring the things we talk about behind closed doors and living rooms that we're like scared to talk about on social media, like to the forefront, you know, and, and actually have conversations about that. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that's like really, I think. That's always something that I think about and that some of the sometimes like those people are not willing to share where they're coming from. And that's, you know, they're right. You know, like just because, you know, I talk about in the book, curiosity is earned, not deserved. Um, you know, there's even some cases where it's illegal to be curious, right? Like a hiring employer can't ask certain questions to people that, you know, are applying for a job. So we don't always have to answer the questions that are being asked of us and we can't in turn, expect that people are going to answer every question that we ask. Um, but, you know, I think there's something there and, I, and I'm really curious about it. Um, but I think what you're experiencing happens on the daily, pretty much across every field, <laughs> across every conflict. I mean, we are unfortunately right now, you know, seeing, um, you know, a decade, you know, a historically long sort of conflict that's happening um, within Israel and Palestine and surrounding countries. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a very sort of similar, um, sort of arena and dialogue that we've seen, you know, in politics and across different fates and, you know, in different eras of our society, you know, even in the past 10 years, um, it's a lot of dehumanization, a lot of sort of, um, you know, rash statements that, um, where people are really not turning towards one another and really trying to understand where each other is coming from. And it makes sense again, because again, people are coming from pain and suffering and they have connections to people in that area. And, you know, there's, they're in jeopardy or they've been killed, you know, and, and that's really intense. So not everyone's going to be open to curiosity or have the capacity for it. And, and that's important to remember and recognize. Yeah. 
Well, we've been kind of sort of alluding to it through some different sections of the book, but the beginning you offer this model that you uh, have the acronym DIVE for. Can you explain that and how it gets us to a place of deep curiosity? With sure, yeah. So DIVE is basically an acronym. It's the four muscles, core muscles to deep curiosity and how we can exercise and access it um, more often in our lives. So D stands for detach, which is to let go of our ABCs, which you brought up. Um, our assumptions, our biases, and our certainty. So how do we just sort of let go of the sense of, of we know everything about a person because of this identity they have? Or, you know, how do we let go of our desire to, you know, want to know all the answers um, and, and, you know, be the sort of the, the person that never says, I don't know, or that I was wrong, but instead to, you know, become an admitter and to sometimes admit to those things because that is truthful and that um, is humble. And we know that when you practice, you know, that form of curiosity, that form of intellectual humility, um, it's a connective force. You're, you're more liked, you're able to work better in groups and, you know, you're rarely seen as, you know, less competent actually when, when you practice those things. So letting go of your ABCs is all about you know, you've got to, we've, we're filled up to the brim with our own assumptions and biases and our own desire for certainty. And we have to really learn to detach and let go from those if we want to truly be curious and let new information and new experiences in. I is intend, which is to set the mindset and the setting for curiosity. So that is, you know, basically what I was talking about with you, right? Like you read the books of the authors that you go on the show with and you write your own questions and like what we're talking about with Cal of like thinking about the questions that you know, are really resonant to us. You know, we have to actually prepare for, you know, especially conversations that might involve conflict. Let's say we're having a really meaty conversation with our teen at home or teenager or with um, our boss, you know, or, you know, with uh, a family member, you know, that's going to require a lot of curiosity from us, right? We need to think about where's the space that we're going to be in to have that conversation? How am I going to show up? What time of day is it going to be? You know, are we going to be both well-fed? How's the temperature going to be? What questions am I asking? How am I pausing and responding to the, you know, their, to the reactions or their responses to what I'm asking? Um, you know, how do I end that conversation? Um, you know, that's really all about this idea of like, we got to prepare, you know, for, for curiosity. We can't just assume it's going to happen. V is value which is to see the dignity of the person that you're being curious with. And that sometimes includes yourself, you know? Sometimes we, de you know, we take the strip ourselves of our own value and we don't see our own humanity. But when we do that, when we dehumanize ourselves or other people, um, we can't actually listen to them because we're, we're, they're, they're, again, like we talked about on this episode, we turn them into the other, into enemies. We're, you know, we're thinking from a place of fear and we're like, well, you better bring a gun. You better bring a knife to that rally because you never know who's going to be out there to like, you know, snatch you. Like you should never talk to strangers, little one, because you never know who's going to pull you into a van, you know? So it's, it's this sort of de the dehumanization, this expectance that other people, um, are lesser than or are evil or savages or whatever terms that we use, unfortunately, as a society to, you know, you know, uh, dehumanize a group of people, we need to move away from that. And then E is embrace, um, which is the last part of dive. And that's to welcome the hard times in our lives. Because we know from the research that when we are curious in these really, really hard moments, like our own death, our own death, for instance, or when we grieve, for instance, right? We talked about, you know, grieving my father's death. You know, 
it's uh, when we we're in a heartbreak moment, a divorce, um, where even something that could be positive, but is really turbulent, like moving to a new house or moving to a new city or taking on a new job. These are the moments when we need, you know, curiosity the most. They, um, it has the most power to, or to ground us, to keep us connected to the people that we are, you know, in those turbulent times with to keep centered on our own needs and desires and um, what we might need to give ourselves to actually handle and navigate those hard situations. So yeah, E is all about embracing the hard times. So D-I-V-E, detach, intend, value, embrace. And when you do those things um, together or, you know, in, you know, it's, it's like a virtuous cycle, you know, and you start to really strengthen that muscle of deep curiosity. In the section on value, you say that if you're sharing when you really should be listening, create more harm, no matter how much positive intent you have before jumping in to share your perspective, claiming that someone needs to get curious about you and your views, start by reflecting on the power dynamics of the relationship, then decide your role accordingly. If you're in a group with more social power, it's important for you to listen. If you're from a group with less social power, take on the role of sharing your perspectives. And the reason that struck me is that I think that, you know, in our sort of new agey self-help world, like if you are talking to a friend who happens to work in like a you know, coaching capacity of any sort, they tend to default to asking you, giving you advice when you're going through a hard time. And like, mm. and that I remember ta- I, I, like there, I was joking with a friend. I was like, I don't want you to be my fucking life coach. I just want you to sit here and listen to me bitch about this girl that broke my heart. Like I don't need a coach right now. Like, you know, um, totally. Oh my gosh. You get yeah. this like unsolicited advice, which I, I realized that that is actually like, when bad things happen to good people, giving them advice is almost one of the cruelest things you can do. Mm, yeah, sometimes people just want to be heard, you know, want to be like listened to and understood and they want a space to vent. I mean, it's really helpful to ask like, hey, what do you need for me in mm-hmm. this moment, right? In those conversations. And some people are like, I just got to vent. And it's like, cool, I'm not going to, you know, throw throw in that advice. But some people do come to you because they need advice. They're like really paralyzed. And they're like, no, I, I like, I need advice, Scott. Like, please like show me like what I'm not seeing because I'm like at my wits end, you know? And so it's helpful, again, to get curious and to understand like, what does this person need right now in this moment? And then to operate from that place, especially if you want to show up as like a good friend, right? Um, but yeah, I think I, yeah, I love that you, you brought up that line. I think that that's really, really an important one. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like I could talk to you all day about this because there's just so I much- know, you're such a great conversation partner. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Well, it's, it's one of those subjects I feel that, that, you know, like, I think we understand the value and we, uh, you know, we lose that as we get older. But like, I can tell you, like I said, I built an entire career off of curiosity. And uh, yeah. it's the thing that literally people ask me how I make decisions with creative projects uh, in almost everything in my life is a decision based on curiosity. Yeah, totally. And not even just in your working life, but in your personal life, too, it sounds like even the way you're looking at you know, your family members who are just like being born into this world or like your relationships oh, yeah. to the people closest to you, right? Like you're constantly being curious about them. And it's so great that this muscle you exercise at work can benefit you in your personal life and vice versa, right? I mean, that's such a great virtuous cycle. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I, I use this AI tool called Mem and I, you know, I've been writing this life advice book for my nephew, which is meant to be given to when he's 18. And one day I just asked oh, yeah, the AI, I, I was that. like, you know who my, my nephew is? And it like asked, you know, who this person is. And it was like, yes, he's your nephew. And I'm like, holy shit, you knew that. And so I got into this very interesting conversation with the AI and I was like, you know what? What if you and I 
as our AI wrote a book together about understanding the psychology of child development through the lens of his experiences. So literally, it's just me indulging my curiosity about like, so basically, I tell mm-hmm. the AI every day, okay, let's work on this book. Um, ask me some questions about what, you know, I've noticed in him recently. And so the AI basically writes the chapter and explains it through the lens of child development, telling the story that I share with it. It's really mm. been and a fun and interesting yeah, project. Yeah, fun and interesting. And it's just going back to, you know, when we model our curiosity for, you know, the people around us, it's more likely that they're going to increase their own capacity for curiosity too. And, you know, that's not just our nieces and nephews and kids. It's it's like everyone around us, you know, like our colleagues are, you know, friends or romantic partner, because that's the, the one thing that I always get asked is like, well, what if I'm being curious and that other person's just not like giving me the time of day to be curious back to me? Like, what can I do in that point? And it's like, yeah, you need to know your boundaries and what your limits are. And I have a whole chapter about that in the book. And you need to know, you know, when is this relationship harming you? But I think what's also important to remember is that, you know, the research says curiosity is contagious, you know, so the more that you practice your own curiosity, the more likely it is someone's going to give that back to you. And I think we've seen that all in conversations and you see that probably in your thousands of conversations you've done that when you're curious, like other people get curious and they start thinking about new things and it just becomes this really, really interesting sort of like give and take spiral is what researcher Todd Cashton, who does a lot of curiosity research, um, describes it as. <laughs> I just um, had but, him as a guest, like literally yeah, last week. Uh, yeah, is, exactly. Which, yeah. So, you know, we're all in the fam, you know, but, um, yeah, I think that, uh, it's, it's, it's really, it's really, um, it's really just like a beautiful thing. Um, yeah. Well, uh, speaking of beautiful things, I think that that uh, makes such a beautiful place to finish our conversation. So I have one final question for you, uh, which is how we finish all of our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think it's someone who is, and you know, this is so me with what I'm exploring right now, but it <laughs> is someone who is genuinely curious about themselves, the world and what's beyond. Like the minute that you lose that curiosity and that zest for exploring and understanding the world around you, the world inside of you, the world beyond what you can even see, you know, that is a minute that you do not become unmistakable. And that is a minute you lose your thirst for life and you lose your connection to creativity and you lose your relationships to others and to, you know, it, it just, it's the downfall of you and your life, you know? So I think we, we need to enter this age where we reclaim our curiosity really practice it every day, inspire others to do it, knowing that it's contagious. And that is what is going to make us unmistakable. Incredible. Uh, Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, the book, your work, and everything else that you're up to? And thank you. And thank you, everyone that's listening for your time and for, you know, being in this conversation with us. You're right here in the room. Um, and you can, you can get the book Seek, How Curiosity Can Transform Your Life and Change the World anywhere where you get books. You can also go to seekthebook.com. There's a bunch of book selling websites there that you can pick up a copy from. And then you can hit me up on social, you know, Scott Shigeoka. I really do respond to people when they like message me because. Again, that is why I became a writer. I mean, that's what I love to do is talk to real people and engage in the topics that I write about. So please let me know if you read the book. Tell me what you thought. <clears throat> Doesn't have to be positive things. I want to engage with you no matter where you, you know, came from with your experience with the book. And thank you so much, Rini. I really appreciated this conversation. It was really, really delightful. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.